From the Defense Acquisition University, this is the Learning Circle. This is the Learning Circle. I'm Anthony Rotolo, and my guest today is Julian Stodd of the consulting firm Sea Salt Learning. He's the author of the Social Leadership Handbook and Exploring the World of Social Learning. And if you haven't guessed by now, he's an expert on the topic we're going to discuss today, social learning. Julian, thank you for joining me today. That's a pleasure. Now, the lazy way to think of social learning is the idea that we'll simply add a forum, like discuss to a page and see what develops. But I think you have a more thoughtful approach where social learning is a means of designing learning. Can you round out our understanding of social learning? Absolutely. I I normally would start with the view that uh, formal learning, that which organizations are used to doing, is, uh, some, is a formal story. It's a story told by the organisation. It's usually defined by time and place. You know, go and do this workshop at this time, do this hour of e-learning at this time. And the success of that learning is usually judged by your ability to pass an assessment. So formal learning is, is very well controlled. It can be very high production quality. But ultimately, it tends to be kind of abstract of our everyday reality. So the challenge comes in how people take that learning and apply it. At its simplest, my definition of social learning is that it's co-created and co-owned. So the organisation ceases to own the story. Instead, it provides a, a scaffolding, a structure, a series of spaces in which people can interact with assets, some of which are formal and some of which are social. So the language I tend to use is scaffolded social learning. And the key difference is that instead of the story being told to the learner, the learner is involved in the co-creation of the story. So the organisation gets a say in it, gets to say, this is our perspective and opinion. Uh, This is the information, architecture and knowledge we think you should have. But the learner also brings in their perspective, saying, this is my experience, this is what I think about what you've told me. And they do that within the, the arms of a community. So community is a key part of, of social learning, a sense-making community. So they're really they're co-authors of this story. It's not just a, a canned story that comes top-down. They're really you know, a participant uh, in building it bit by bit. That's right. I mean, the, 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 the two pieces you've got are formal organizations can tell really good formal stories. But deep within organizations, spread out at every level, is the tacit tribal lived experience of the organization. And in many cases, what happens is people go through formal training, pass formal assessment, but they don't really learn until they're immersed in that tacit knowledge out in the community. In fact, I'd normally go so far as to say in many cases, organizations are successful not because of everything they do to help people to learn and understand. But kind of despite all that, they're successful because at a very granular local level, people are surrounded by communities of practitioners who help them to succeed. Yes. So really what we're trying to do is um, create a space, a series of spaces in which that can happen. So we're not making it fully social. It's not like the kind of learning you or I might do every day to figure out which car to buy next or to decide what book to buy next. 
um, but neither is it fully formal. It sort of sits somewhere in the middle. And the key aspect, really, is that it ties in, to some extent, with that local lived and earned knowledge. Mm -hmm. And there are all sorts of good reasons and evidence for why that makes a more effective approach to learning. That's the scaffolding you're talking about that makes it semi-formal? Yeah, absolutely, because we're still shaping the journey. So to give you an example, a, a leadership development journey developed within a scaffolded social learning approach may be a journey to help define the type of leadership that this organization needs and to then go through that journey and learn to be that great leader. A formal leadership development journey would be one that says, this is the type of leadership that we need, and this is how you will become that leader. Yes. And that's the difference. It's, it's a co-created, co-owned model. And that means it's quite untidy. So the journey that people take through social learning typically takes much longer. It happens over time because they are bringing part of their everyday reality into the learning. And it also means that people take different journeys through this material. We still are feeding them some formal assets, some podcasts, some PDFs, some e-learning. We can be feeding all those components in, but they're also interacting with other elements. And the community itself is making a judgment and steering them where to go. So we tie into the social filtering and sense-making mechanisms of the community. Mm -hmm. Really the same forces that let us hear new music, read new books, decide which museum to go to. You yes. know, what does the community say is worth going to see? Has this been tough for organizations who normally control the story to adapt to this co-creation where maybe they're not expecting the conversation to go where it went, right? It's very um, interesting. I've seen a significant shift over the last six years or so while I've been writing and working quite extensively around this space, um, away from organizations just being very interested but not doing anything, towards the majority of organizations that I now work with are doing something about it. They're trying. And there are a fairly predictable pattern of activities that they take and really some quite predictable success or failure points as well. Um, the first is there's often a, a strong focus on technology because organizations like technology. Mm -hmm. They know how to buy it. They know how to operate it. They know how to control it. But of course, social learning is about conversations and community. And conversations and community are different from technology. They may well happen on the technology you give people, but they may happen elsewhere as well. And indeed, this year I'm doing a, a, a large a global project on, around trust, looking at how people trust organizations and the technology that people are given. And it turns out that, that people trust formal technology far less than they trust social and personally owned technology, about 30% less. So it's quite a significant factor. So as organizations move into this space, they have to be willing to relinquish certain aspects of control. Partly it might be around recognizing that not all the interactions will happen on your own technology. Significantly, it's that you will no longer own the story. You'll have a say in the story, but you have to listen to what other people say as well. Yes. That trust disparity that you just mentioned, is that because the formal seems kind of faceless where... You're given an opportunity to get to know and like and trust people. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. The prototype research uh, involved around 5,000 people around the world in, in a whole series of different organizations. And it uncovers 
some significant factors. Uh, the first is one of consequence. So the application of consequence is a significant effect on people's willingness to engage. Often organisations apply consequence unevenly. So sometimes they'll apply it very strongly, saying you're doing something that's non-compliant, that's, that's uh, not allowed. But sometimes they're quite loose in the application of consequence. And the result of this is that people are hesitant. So by running an identical social learning programme on a formal technology platform and on social technology, so in one case on an SAP uh, learning management system and collaborative software, and in another case on private LinkedIn groups, WordPress and WhatsApp, um, I found that the, so the group working through the social software had engagement that was six times higher than that on the formal software. And furthermore, they use quantifiably different words and phrases. They're more likely to share stories of challenge and failure than they are in the formal space, largely because if you interview people, they believe they are operating outside of that formal consequence. So it, it's quite... Fascinating. I often find that organisations are primarily concerned with engagement. The, the number one question they usually say is, how do we get people to engage in it? But the real challenge isn't about engagement. Uh, you get people to engage by getting out of their way. The real challenge is in what you do with the stories that you hear. Because if you ask people to contribute, to co-create, and you then try to mark or react to the story you're probably missing the point that the challenge for the organisation is to learn from the story. And the mm, challenge from the yes. individual is to learn from the organisation. You know, but it, it's, it's a coming together. That's really fascinating. Very, very, very different. I think it's a new way of listening and it's a shared learning journey, really. I think that's is what's right. happening. I mean, my work is founded in the social age, which is really a, a way of saying... In the world we see around us, we're seeing a, a rebalancing of power between organisations and individuals. We're seeing the di diminution of formal authority, the erosion of formal authority and control, mm -hmm. and the rise in social authority and community. So it's a, it's a rebalancing of power. Um, in some ways, one could argue that most of the formal structures of organisations that we see around us are actually a recent invention. And the primary effects of technology are ones of connectivity and democratization. So technology is bringing us together in many different channels in highly resilient ways. And it's connecting us to be creative, to come together in communities, to figure stuff out. So the fiction of formal learning has been sort of held over us for quite a long time. But it no longer is held so true because now people can find their voice and can take part in it. So there's a huge win here. Uh, I mean, typically I'd say social learning is about effectiveness. It's about helping people to do better. It's not about conformity. It's about um, a devolved capability. Uh, sometimes it's worth thinking about, you know, what are we trying to do with learning? Are we looking for adherence to one way of doing things? Because if we're looking for that, then formal learning is a great approach. You can get people to do stuff the same way. But if we're looking for capability and effectiveness, what we're really looking for is outcomes. And within the learning experience, we have to provide space for people to learn, rehearse, prototype, iterate, share knowledge, figure out their own vocabulary, and then perform. 
very different experience than just being pushed through a you know set of learning objectives. It's yeah. very different, very um, constructivist. Is yeah. that a word you use? It is in this? absolutely so, yes. and it, it's 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 more effective. I mean, yes. it's plain and and simple. The challenge for organisations is they have allowed themselves to become trapped in templates and mindsets that drive them to uh, produce learning of a certain type without really going back to the purpose of the learning function. The purpose of a learning function is to help people perform. And many of the arguments that are pushed back against social learning to do with the fact that you can't do it in a regulated environment or a compliance environment are entirely false because you can build a better organisation using these approaches. No organisation that operates very strong compliance, rules and regulation-driven processes and high sanctions, has ever managed to be fully compliant because it's failing to listen to the voices of the practitioners, the people who do things. A really socially dynamic organisation can be highly compliant, can be highly secure, because it's acting in trust with and together. That's right. Yeah, there's, re- there's reasons why people aren't complying. There may be common sense reasons why the rule doesn't work, but they um, are not going to get the right kind of compliance because they aren't listening. So we can learn. To, we can learn to be compliant. Uh, the, the best sets of rules are ones that evolve and change. Many yes. organisations are good at writing rules. Yes. They're really poor at undoing rules that turn out to be an Yeah, and you know, if you're listening, sometimes you don't need the rule. Because sometimes, you know, uh, I've heard it said that a rule or a policy is like a form of a scar on an organization. It represents something that went badly and now we're going to make the rule and it's never going to happen again. But if there were the dialogue, uh, perhaps something else could shift, something else could change, and you don't need to state the rule and try to get the compliance that way. Absolutely. And that's absolutely right. I like like the analogy of a scar. I I, I normally say organizations try to cage complexity with rules. They try to hold it in place, but it's like trying to hold water. It just flows through your fingers. You can never constrain an organization to be safe and effective purely with rules. What you really need is engagement. The power that will drive an organization to be successful in the social age will be a deeply engaged community that are trusted and have trust in them. 54% of people in the trust research say that what they really want is freedom. They want a freedom to help other people succeed, to share their stories. Um, What they experience is control. 54% of people as well say that they have low or no trust in the organization they work for. So trust is important. That's why I'm exploring it this year. It's very important. I've been in organizations where the trust factor was low and there were the rules. And uh, I remember someone saying to me, hey, you know, they treat us like children. We're going to act like children. And uh, it's another way of saying that there wasn't the engagement factor. So it, it was not a healthy situation because of that. I think it's um, fair to expect that meaningful dialogue requires the time element in which it's to unfold. What is the role of time in the design of social learning? It's really, uh, it's an important point. Uh, Social learning typically takes place over longer periods of time. And it does so because, firstly, we have to build high-functioning communities. We can't assume that a community is coherent just because we've given them the technology and the purpose. They have to find a shared value. And secondly, because social learning is about you bringing your work into the learning and taking the learning into your work. 
So instead of just providing a learning opportunity and then expecting you to perform, it provides a learning space and a rehearsal space. It's a dynamic rehearsal space. So you do your rehearsing while you're still within the arms of that learning community. Now, you touched on scaffolding earlier. You speak of scaffolded social learning. But can you tell me just a little more exactly, what does that look like? Absolutely. So um, a scaffolding is a structure for the learning to take place within. So if we, just for the sake of this, say that we're going to run a social learning program over a 10-week period, then through that 10-week period, we would lay out a scaffolding, the chapters of our journey, and with, uh, we can really consider that social learning is about creating a series of spaces. And within those spaces, we're going to utilize specific co-creative behaviors. So co-creative behaviors are the building blocks we can use to put that scaffolding together. So let me give you some examples of that. Um, one co-creative behavior would be curation. So if we were talking about um, a, a, a piece of learning on understanding uh, competition, then the formal organization may produce a podcast or a video saying, this is our view of competition. But we may ask people in the community to curate an example of an organization they see somewhere in the world competing effectively. So they bring their example into the group, into the community. So that way we have a formal example and the community brings their own examples in. Another co-creative behaviour might be interpretation. So take the example you bring in and interpret it, explain why it is relevant to the subject that we're talking about. Now we can move the location of that around. So if you curated one example and said, I think Amazon is a really effective competitor, I may have to interpret that to say why. And in order to interpret it, I'd want to talk to you about it. Yes. So we could do that. We could then look at another couple of people over there and we could swap stories and respond to those stories. So co-creative behaviours are really simple. They're not uh, rocket science, but we actively put them together. So the scaffolding is where we choreograph the journey through that, uh, in this example, a 10-week period. And, and the uh, choreography is a term that, that we use because behind the scenes, it actually requires a very high level of design for social learning and, and to give you an idea of that normally I would say in a, if we were producing some e-learning we'd spend about 30% of our effort on, on the uh, design piece, scripting, wireframing and maybe 70% on actually building hard collateral in a social learning context we may be spending 60 or 70% of our effort on the design and build of that scaffolding and creating a running order which shows in detail where these bubbles are, these co-creative spaces, mm. where these solid gateways are, because we still have gateways. There may be accreditation gateways or understanding gateways. And we then also need to bring in mechanisms of storytelling, because stories are the primary uh, mechanism of knowledge transfer in social learning. Usually I'd look at um, how do we capture the individual story of learning over the sequence of that, that um, period of time? How do we capture the co-created group narrative? And finally, how do we evolve the organisational narrative? Because it really is the case that if you run a cohort through social learning ten times, it's not only the individuals that learn, the organisation itself should be learning and adapting 
the experience that it's providing. How do you define story in this context? Because you, 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 you use the word a lot and, and collecting stories. So um, stories are really operate on different levels. I typically look at those three levels, the sort of personal narrative of learning and change over time. So one measure of social learning is if I say, I think I've learned something. You know, if I say, I'm trying this thing in my real work, I've heard this thing that Anthony said, I've done this thing that Mary said, this worked, this didn't work, I think I'm going to try what that group's trying. That sort of personal narrative is valuable, yes. and we should actively catch it. Now, it's highly qualitative, it's highly subjective, but nonetheless, it is evidence of a reflective process. But all learners will have an individual narrative that's different. We may give everybody a formal video that we produced, and some of them may say it was rubbish. Some may say it was incredibly useful. And some may say, I found this video on YouTube, which is much more useful. Some may record their own video uh, to say, this is my response to it. So in the way that uh, the the personal narrative is produced, and then may be shared into a co-created narrative. So if you have a cohort of 25 people going through a, a module, you look to actively co-create a narrative. And crucially, the co-created narrative captures, like a journalist would capture, the discussions of the community. It's absolutely not about driving consensus. Formal learning drives consensus. Social learning captures different views and opinions. So it says, some of us thought this, but other people strongly agreed and thought this. We evidenced our view with this, and they evidenced their view with that. And this is where we ended up. So it's a place for divergence. Absolutely. And divergence is a great thing. You know, we we can use an evolutionary analogy in any population. Diverse strengths are valuable because they make us more resilient. And social learning gives us that, a range of thinking. This collection of the stories, for example, is this a part, you, you were expressing a percentage of the design effort does the it seems like a lot of work is is that collecting activities that part of that percentage you're talking about or is that something that happens afterward that's part of the um, so it is a lot of work i mean it should be really clear any organization goes into social learning because they think it will be easier and cheaper and faster is fundamentally missing the point yes it's about making people more effective and you know as i say to groups of learning designers um, you don't need to go into your, your everyday work with a view that you're somehow beaten into doing something the organization tells you to do. You should have a confidence and pride in your job that lets you go to the organization and say, you know, I can help people be more effective and I can evidence that through the stories that are being written and the capability that's being demonstrated. That has great worth. At the moment, we squander vast amounts of money on formal learning that's often entirely ineffective. People pass the test, but they don't actually behave radically differently. It's true. I mean, so much of it is just a lot of water through the cognitive pipe, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't change you. You can't remember, you know, and and when you look at the statistics of the, you know, the forgetting curve uh, by the time you get back there. uh, I had an interview earlier today where we spoke a lot about workflow learning, and do you use that terminology? Uh, Does that touch your research, the idea of social learning and what we call workflow learning sometimes? Yeah, I mean, it's very much uh, about that. Uh, a um, A healthy learning community is a practitioner community. So people are learning and applying 
yes. and applying their learning back into the community. It really is uh, about mindset change. Yes. Um, it's for the organisation about removing a mindset which says learning is semi-important, done now and then, and then kind of ignored, through to an organisation that recognises that learning is continuous, it's always, it's every day, and it results in change. I mean, that's the key thing. An agile organisation can change, not through great effort, but because it's fundamentally adapted to be able to change. And part of that ability will come from high-functioning, deeply connected, high-trust networks and communities, from a lived experience of being able to learn, rehearse, prototype and apply. If we don't give people the space and the support to learn, they will continue to do the great job they're doing today. And they'll do that in an environment where the world is changing around us. Yes. We need to build strength into our organisations and ability to change. And learning, almost my favourite definition of learning, is that learning is change. It's change in how we think, it's change in how we act, it's change in how we help each other. I like what you said about the world changing around you. I've said that often. I think about how often the world is changing and it finally takes that wake-up moment in order for an organisation to change because things are passing them by. So this dialogue that you're talking about, I think that infuses the, the organization with, uh, with the change, whether it's coming from just a few change agents that are bringing it into the dialogue. Would that, would that be correct, you, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I'm a generalist, so I, I work around learning, around leadership, around culture, around organizational change. And the, the major book I'm publishing in the summer this year is about change. It's about how organizations change how they resist it, how they're constrained within it, or how they become dynamic, and that notion of a socially dynamic organisation. So old organisations base their power in infrastructure, formal hierarchy, assets, production, tooling, distribution networks. A socially dynamic organisation has that strength, but it also has deeply connected, high-trust, reputation-based learning communities. Yes. So it has two types of strength. And it balances the dynamic tension between them. So uh, I think it's, it's, it's key. We change not through an order from above and not only through our formal power. We change through the ability of teams at a, at a devolved and localised level to learn and evaluate and to iterate and to share their stories. You know, yes. Allowing these stories to share the personal, co-created and organisational narratives needs to mesh together. So very bottom up. This is uh, this marries to the older term of knowledge workers. You mentioned earlier about you were describing the scaffolding and the formal structure that's still there, and how there are stage gates, uh, perhaps of understanding. So I wanted to ask you, you know, so when it comes to assessment versus the goal of understanding, what form does that take here? How can we assess if learning is taking place? Well, I mean, the good thing with social learning is we can assess it more effectively than with many other types of learning. And, and typically I say that what we look to do is to triangulate between at least three different types of measures. So to give you some examples, one measure is personal stories. So if you have a group of 500 or 5,000 or 50,000 people going through learning and they are writing stories about what they are doing, how they are learning, what they're thinking about, what they agree with, what they disagree with, that is giving you a whole level of data about what they're thinking about. Now, is it untidy? Is it messy? Absolutely it is. 
But is it deeply grounded? Yes. You know, and you can have all the abstract measures of learning you like, but I'd go for applied measures every time. So if people go through learning and say, I tried it all out, it didn't work, that's a perfectly valid assessment of learning. And if we're wise, we can measure that at scale. So one is personal narratives. The second is the co-created group narratives. So that helps us to understand where the relative strengths, weaknesses and divergent opinions are within the groups that we're looking at. We can look at variations of 360 degree measures. So if I think that you are learning and doing something different, that's actually a valuable piece of data. If a manager believes that you are learning and doing something different, that's valuable. So now we've got you saying what you think, your manager saying what they think, and maybe your peers and colleagues also giving a view. And you can chart and aggregate that at scale. In fact, I'm just at the moment working up a prototype of looking at this across a population of 400 learners and mapping it back to how dynamic the organisation is. Where are the resistors that prevent it being able to change as mm. a result of that learning? You can also still include formal measures of learning. There's nothing wrong with formal measures, and indeed there's nothing wrong with formal learning. It's just part of the story. So we can include that. And then one of my favourite areas is, is to produce simulations. You know, I think these are very valuable to be able to yes. let people apply and measure through simulation. So uh, the simple answer is triangulate between at least three different measures, from fully formal to fully social. And that gives us a richer story about what the learning is. It's yeah, a it's, it's a really multidimensional way of assessing. I mean, really, my work is based in a, an approach to learning, not specifically social learning or mobile learning, or e-learning, or face-to-face -face learning. I don't really buy into all that. It's just about learning. Yes. So there are times when sitting people in a room and talking to them for three hours is a good model of learning. Not very often, but you know there are contexts yes. that can be. E-learning can be great. Simulations can be great. Social learning can be great. They all have their time and place. And our decision as to what type of learning we use should really be founded in a deep-held understanding of learning methodology. Are we setting a context? Are we demonstrating things? Are we exploring? Are we playing? Are we assessing? Are we supporting performance? All of those questions would point us in a different direction to the type of the modality that we use. Very helpful. And finally, on the subject of administering social learning, what kind of an approach do you recommend regarding rules and facilitation, you know, facilitating these conversations? Is it a loose thing? Is it a light presence? What does effective facilitation look like? Well, there are probably sort of two parts to that answer. If we, if we look at rules, first of all, um, you can have some significant effects on engagement by moving towards the co-creation of rules. So you effectively give people within the communities some ownership and control of the rules. So uh, to give you an example of that, you may have a hard rule applied by the organisation that says no patient data or no financial data um, or, or nothing talked about security. The organisation can impose rules upon it, either from a security and compliance point of view or possibly from a safeguarding point of view. Yes. But then the community itself may have some views as well. So one thing we may ask the community is about the permanence of the data. What will happen to the conversation after we've finished that learning journey? Will it be archived? Will it be deleted? Uh, you know, what will happen to it? We, uh, and that's significant, actually. One organization I'm working with at the moment wishes to carry out some semantic analysis of the aggregated data from all their learning communities. 
And I've been talking to them about how they need to seek a permission of the learner to do that. We know that big data can be really valuable, and they're a really good group of people wanting to do great work, but they are at risk of breaching the trust of the people within that community. Because, mm. in fact, one interesting thing that comes out from the trust research is if the conversations people have deliver value to the organisation, they want to be rewarded. So we have to understand that dynamic. The other thing you can do... I've work this quite successfully with some groups is to give them a degree of control over who can look in on them whilst they're co-creating. Uh, and in one project I ran, uh, some groups said nobody. The community is just for us as the learners. One group said the executives can look in on it while we're doing it, but only if they come in and participate, mm. which I thought was quite neat. Yes. Um, so co-creating rules can be powerful. And to your second point, the facilitating roles... I normally look at it in two ways. One is the formal facilitation role, and the other is the social facilitation role. Sometimes I call that first one the community manager, and the second one is the storyteller. I'm, in fact, gathering together a library of different job roles and prototyping different ones at the moment. But the community manager effectively carries formal sanction and consequence. So they're the people that help you to master the technology if you've forgotten your password. They start to say if you're falling behind, they start to invoke formal consequence. You need that kind of role. The storyteller role is the one that helps people find their voice. It helps everybody to take part. It's one of nurturing, facilitation and enablement. And specifically, it can't carry formal consequence because otherwise it becomes just a formal voice. Mm. Now, those roles may be provided by the organisation, but as you start to scale up, you'll cease to be able to provide that, you know, become too expensive, too complex. So we have to sometimes develop that capability within the community itself, which is really what I look at in the social leadership work. How do we find, nurture and develop the community storytellers, the community leaders? Because that's a whole new arm of the organization that we need to develop. You need people that are part of the conversation. They're guides, but they're fundamentally, they're part of the conversation, helping the story to unfold. Yeah, if you look at how communities work, there are all sorts of different facets around this. Um, so communities don't particularly rely on one technology, certainly not one that's given to them by the organisation, but they are often facilitated by technology. They have many conversations that will flow between technologies. Some people will take strong leadership roles. Some people will take nurturing roles, roles of challenge. Some people will bring coherence to the group. Some people will introduce new knowledge. Some people will introduce people into other communities. Um, there's all sorts of different roles and all sorts of different purposes. There's all sorts of ways that communities become coherent and find value. Uh, you can do a great deal of work looking at how communities become effective. And then the responsibility of the organisation becomes not to try to own and control a community, but rather to hold open spaces to facilitate and enable those communities to form and thrive. That's really the top challenge. How does the organisation move its mindset to become facilitating, enabling and welcoming of those communities rather than simply trying to own and control them? Yeah, and that's a challenge there because some organisations will purchase platforms and hope for stuff to happen. Absolutely. And it, and it does. And I, I guess I do have a final question, which is that these discussions invariably lead to talk of this or that tool or platform. And, I, and you were very clear it's not, you know, we don't want to mistake that for the social learning. But 
How do we go about choosing the technologies that support social learning? How do we arrive at that decision? Well, the, the work I, uh, I look at that under is, is around um, learning technology architectures. And, and put simply, the view I take is this. Instead of thinking about a particular platform, we should think about what does a community need. So, for example, and indeed what the organisation needs. So we know that we need conversation spaces. We know that we need co-creative spaces. We know that we need heavy infrastructure spaces to distribute formal assets and measure and control things. We know that we need um, storytelling spaces. We know that we need assessment spaces. You know, I could, I could produce a long list. And for each of those spaces, we can look at the things that vary between them. So, for example, a conversation space needs to be highly synchronous. You know, there can't be some long layer of moderation. If I say something, you have to be able to respond to it fast. Yes. It needs to be highly democratised so that we can say what's really going through our minds at the moment. It needs to be very low consequence. I have to be able to say something stupid and realise I've said something stupid. You can't screenshot it and bring it back to me in my annual performance review. The more consequence we apply in conversational spaces, the less likely people are to engage. Mm, yes. Co-creative spaces need to allow us to share, to bring in different, to curate different content and assets. Yes. They need to allow us to have sense-making conversations. They need varying levels of privacy. But they may also, we have to think about how democratised are they, what's the level of permanence. Core infrastructure spaces are highly formal, will have high permanence and high control, and that's okay, because we need those as well. Storytelling spaces will need to be segregated between personal, co-created, organisational. So you can kind of break down that picture. That's where, when I work with organisations that are trying to adapt their view of learning and are trying to build this diverse ecosystem of technology, I start with that learning architecture. And then you can say, well, which tool will fit which of these needs? Some of it will be the heavyweight infrastructure systems. You may need that for your inf you know, for infrastructure. But whilst many of the vendors are saying our tool can do everything, a wise organisation will say, well, no, actually, we want a series of tools that fit within these elements of the architecture. Mm. So we'll use this one or this collection of tools as conversational spaces. These are our co-creative spaces. This is our infrastructure space. This is our, our, our assessment space. So they will invest capability in how they link those together. The strongest organisations I see um, invest in that core capability, not just owning and controlling, not just procuring one big platform to try to rule everything, but rather linking together different pieces. Yeah, really getting the right fit for the need yeah. and then finding a way to make it a system yeah. that works. Yeah. Uh, very helpful. This is a very challenging area, very interesting. I thank you for your time today. Can you tell our listeners how we can find your writings online? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I operate with the principle of working out loud. So I share all of my writing and research as I go, um, using open data principles as well. So my blog is, is just under my name. So www.julianstodd.wordpress.com. Seasalt uh, Learning is seasaltlearning.com. And um, all, all of my work is there. It's around 1,700 articles. Uh, my eight books are there. And I'm happy to share those uh, freely as well. So I, I really do try to, to share all of my work. Uh, I'm on Twitter as well, at Julian Stott. Uh, I run regular open sessions. Um, I, I always uh, take the view that I'm not presenting answers. I'm sharing my thinking as I'm learning how to do things better. Yes. 
and, and welcome the chance to engage with people. So you're living the message that we, we just talked about. I, I try to. I mean, yes. I, I'm unafraid to, to say I'm lucky enough to work with many of the, the biggest and most complex organizations in the world, and yet many of them will fail. They will fail because they are anchored in an old world that has passed us by. Yes. The true disruptive effects of the technologies that have transformed everything have led to evolved social behaviours. We are in a new world, and the old structures of governance and control won't suit us in this new world. Yes. So we have to adapt. And that starts with us. You know, if I don't change what I'm doing, I'm precisely part of the problem. And the same is true for all of us. Fantastic. Julian, thank you again for being with us today. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To catch up on all of our shows, subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Learning Circle is produced and distributed by the Defense Acquisition University.